The use of Bitcoin and other crypto and virtual currencies poses big risks and cybersecurity concerns for banking institutions, as many senders and recipients of these currencies can easily veil their identities. And because these currencies are not regulated, there are no standards in place for authenticating users' identities, which poses many money laundering issues. What's more, the value of these crypto and virtual currencies often fluctuates, which poses additional worries for banking institutions. But as the use of these currencies becomes more prevalent, banking institutions cannot avoid acceptance of crypto and virtual currencies. So what steps should they be taking to ensure that they are adequately addressing cybersecurity and money laundering risks? Here, Vincent D'Agostino, a former special agent within the cyber branch of the FBI, who recently joined AML compliance and cyber defense firm K2 Intelligence, explains how cyber criminals are using crypto and virtual currencies to perpetrate fraud and steps banking institutions should be taking to protect themselves. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. So Vinny, you recently joined K2 after a long career with the FBI where you spent the bulk of your career focused on a number of high profile cyber investigations, including the takedown of the Silk Road Network. Can you just tell our audience a bit about your investigations background into the dark web, international botnet investigations and other cyber crimes? Sure, yeah. Well, as you mentioned, I spent the uh, bulk of my career doing, or the latter part of my career doing the cyber uh, investigative work. The initial part of my career was focused on enterprise investigations of a more traditional sense vis-a-vis -vis Italian organized crime. Well, what sort of sparked that transition was seeing dark markets such as Silk Road, Silk Road 2, the emergence of those networks, which were really just a different type of enterprise than we were seeing in the traditional sense. I made that move several years ago over to cyber and began doing investigations on those Tor hidden services, which um, culminated in the Silk Road 1 trial and the Silk Road 2 uh, takedown. What would you say are some of the long-term implications of the Silk Road case and takedown? So for the Silk Road 1 case, I think the real takeaway from that for a lot of people was the destruction of the illusion of anonymity that, that many people thought Tor and Bitcoin specifically provided. You know, there was that moment during opening statements during the uh, Silk Road 1 trial where Ross Ulbricht's lead counsel, Josh Traytel, had mentioned that the Bitcoin that we had found on the defendant's laptop was the result of Bitcoin mining and uh, Bitcoin trading, I think he said. And that was something that we weren't initially expecting. So we were forced to go back and, and do another analysis. And, and what we ultimately ended up doing was showing the one-to-one -one connection between the Bitcoin wallet recovered from the Silk Road server in Iceland and the wallet recovered from Ross Ulbricht's laptop. And I think one of the takeaways from that, and I think that many people in the press picked up on this, was sort of the realization that as, as anonymous as Bitcoin can be, if done properly, if done improperly and mistakes are made, it has the exact opposite impact and effect in terms of proving your ownership of that money. And I think a lot of people were surprised at the conclusion of that trial. Vinny, when it comes to some of the investigations that you work on, how closely have you worked with financial services organizations in some of these cyber takedowns? I think for every case I was involved in, there was a connection to the financial sector in one way or another. That's simply because the reason why people commit crimes 99% of the time is for some type of financial gain. So whether it was you know, in the more traditional sense with traditional banking institutions initially, and then we saw that move over to the use of large Bitcoin exchanges to launder and clean that money, and that in turn forced us to you know, figure out a way to work with these exchanges in order to you know, effectively use that information to further our investigations as opposed to it just initially being a real hindrance and a dead end. 
Vinny, what are some of your thoughts about the cybercrime extortion group known as DD4BC, DDoS for Bitcoin? How concerned should banks be and why aren't more of them reporting extortion to law enforcement? We're in an interesting place right now when it comes to that because a lot of financial institutions are faced with that very tough decision of um, this is no different than a crypto wall situation where your data is encrypted overnight while you're asleep usually. You wake up to find that all your data is encrypted and there's a ransom you know, to provide Bitcoin payment that is reasonable given the value that most people put on their data. And most people will pay that and never report that to the FBI. This situation with the banks and DDoS for Bitcoin is very similar. A lot of financial institutions would rather pay that fee and hope and believe that those the subjects won't return to them as they promised. And from a cryptocurrency perspective, if done properly, it's very, very difficult. Even obviously knowing the receiving address that they're, they're giving you to pay them, it's very, very difficult to, to investigate that type of extortion if done properly. Having said that, I think there is an opportunity there. And with major Bitcoin exchanges making a big push in the last year, year and a half to become compliant and basically follow the same rules that many banks do, that money eventually has to reach an exit ramp and that Bitcoin has to be converted to money at some point for most people. And so if that money can be traced back to Bitcoin exchanges or other off ramps, then there might be some viable leads in there. The banks are put in a very difficult position right now. I think the takeaway from that is to just, you know, have suitable DDoS protection so as to withstand that attack or maybe even prevent them from selecting you as a target altogether if they could see that your front-end security would be resistant to their DDoS capabilities at this time. So let's go back to talk a bit about some of the, the ways that institutions are getting scammed. And cryptocurrency is posing a lot of challenges. As you mentioned with DD4BC, it's difficult to trace if the attackers are doing it the right way. Why is cryptocurrency so concerning to you, Vinny? I think it's as concerning as it is exciting for me. I think there are certain characteristics of Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency that sort of lend itself to illegal activity, given the highly anonymous nature of creating an address and transferring money between two people with no third-party intervention. And we saw this with the Silk Road investigation. There's a lot of people out there who may have ideas of things that they want to do, buying and selling in drugs or child pornography or, or credit card data or proprietary information, that the only reason they don't do it is because they can't figure out a way to get paid anonymously. And Bitcoin provides that technique, that tool now, so that people have an easier time of doing that. So having said that, that's the part that's concerning. But the other side of that is Bitcoin technology itself, the protocol itself, is exciting. It's a drastic deviation from, from anything else we've ever dealt with as far as a public blockchain goes, a public ledger of all transactions for all the world to see, and the underlying protocol itself being open source, being able to be examined for vulnerabilities if should anyone ever find one. So I think it's problematic because of the initial use is going to be for illegal activity for a lot of people. But I think it's exciting because once we get through those growing pains, I think, I think there's a huge future for Bitcoin and specifically the blockchain technology itself. Yes, Vinicius, let's talk a bit about that. So blockchain is the software that actually brought virtual currency into existence, and it enables a new way for people and banks to directly exchange money and assets such as stocks and bonds without having to rely on a so-called middleman. So do you see banking institutions using blockchain in the future? 
Yeah, I think there's that opportunity to do that. I think you know initially for right now, it, the blockchain is being used for the you know Bitcoin transactions themselves. But the benefits of that technology can be brought into the banking sector, into the financial sector, in, in many different ways. Other than just even adding in a, a Bitcoin component to a bank's currency or accepted currency, that'd be the most obvious way. But the blockchain technology itself, having all transactions be publicly visible, but non attributable at the same time where if there's a dispute about a particular transaction it's not a matter of looking at one person's books as opposed to another company's books or one person's version of a document as opposed to another person's version of a document you know the blockchain as ubiquitous as it is allows you to say if we wanted to determine the exact time and date that something occurred between two persons or two companies two entities the blockchain allows you to do that in a way that we've never seen before. And I think that's the real advantage for uh, financial institutions is to look to take advantage of that technology, whether it be for currency or for contracts or any type of a, a deed, filing a deed, where we, we normally would go through the typical process of filing through the clerk's office and it has to be stamped and, and notarization has to occur. Blockchain technology eliminates all of that. The digital signature can authenticate. You can hash a document. You can authenticate it through the digital signatures. It can become part of the blockchain. And if someone were to alter any of those documents in any way, it would invalidate the hash, and you would know it's, it's a fraud. So I think that's a huge area that the financial sector can, can really look forward to and embrace as opposed to be afraid of. Vinny, what would you say are some of the challenges that banking institutions face when it comes to Bitcoin exchanges? There's a couple of challenges. I mean, one is the challenge of people choosing to use uh, cryptocurrency as opposed to fiat currency, and I think that scares a lot of financial institutions even though certainly we're not at any kind of tipping point. I think most people don't even really know what Bitcoin is. So there's that sort of challenge and whether, you know, I think the days of ignoring it or hoping it'll go away or, or stomping it out, we're past that point. And I think banks have to accept that there probably will be oh, and always will be a place for cryptocurrency if it's not Bitcoin and it morphs into something else. But I think banks getting involved with Bitcoin, you know, are going to have to deal with the same technical challenges that it becomes more of a cyber issue. When you're dealing with a currency that involves the movement of money into and more importantly out of wallets, right? Those wallets have to be loaded. They have to be, you know, what we would call a hot wallet. They have to be on the internet. And so any bank dealing in Bitcoin that has the ability to move money in, which doesn't need to be online, but for them to move money out of a wallet, that wallet file, those keys will need to be accessed, will need to be internet accessible. They're going to have to deal with serious intrusion concerns, much like a lot of the people running the dark markets we're dealing with, where there are thefts that occur from outsiders that are intruding upon their networks and compromising those private keys for those wallet files and stealing the money. So. Companies that do decide to get involved, banks that do decide to get directly involved with Bitcoin will have to figure out a way to protect those private keys from intrusion because once that money's gone, it's gone. There is no phone number to call. There is no, there is no hey, I'd like my money back. This was accidentally sent to somebody. Please return it. There is no going back. Once a transaction settles, it settles for good. It's a whole new area of, uh, of a technical challenge, I think, for banks. Vinny, do you think that most banking institutions really understand the risks? No, but I think they're going to learn quickly. I think that there's more than enough legitimate money behind Bitcoin that I think most people behind major financial institutions will find a way to learn this stuff very quickly. My opinion is there is a market there. 
there is a way to offset some of the risk by having it backed by more traditional banks. And I think in the next year or so, there will be people that will rise above the rest in terms of embracing this technology, and it's going to become very, very competitive very quickly. And then, Vinny, one final question before we close. Do you see AML compliance and cybersecurity converging? And if you do see it converging, what does that mean for banks, and how should they coordinate AML and cybersecurity functions? Yeah, they're essentially becoming one and the same. I don't even know, you know, intellectually now in my mind how to distinguish the two. If you're dealing with anti-money laundering uh, statutes and procedures within a financial institution, you're invariably going to come across a cyber issue. I think every intrusion that occurs at a financial institution should be presumed to be financially motivated. Uh, anytime there's a compromise of any data, anytime there's any structuring that's going on with payments, the ultimate end game for that is financial and the ultimate method by which that's done is through the internet, is through some cyber nexus. So we're not dealing with the traditional check kiting anymore. Those days are done. These attacks are coming from many times uh, overseas and are much more damaging in terms of the scope and the level of intrusion that occurs. And so from an anti-money laundering perspective, that information needs to be shared with the so-called cyber people within those institutions and vice versa because that's going to become indistinguishable, I think, in the next probably two to three years at the most. Well, Vinny, I'd like to thank you again for your time today. No problem. Thank you. Again, we've just heard from Vincent D'Agostino of K2 Intelligence. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.